What do you fear most? A lot of people are scared of a lot of different things. I want you to think about that as we begin this morning. What is it that brings the most fear to your mind and heart? I did a little research on this and I found different phobias. And there are several that I think that it would be very uh, beneficial for you to hear. Y'all ready to hear about some fears? Okay. I'm going to give you seven. One is eichmophobia, the fear of needles or pointed objects. Any want to confess I have a little fear of a little needle? Okay. All right. Let, let me, another one here. Uh, I think that most Baptists have this. It's in Baptist DNA. It's called chorophobia, the fear of dancing. And I'm firmly convinced the reason why most Baptists are against dancing, it's not because it's banned in the Bible. In fact, the Jews used dance as a, not dropping it like it's hot, but a godly type of poetic form of dancing for worship. The reason why most Baptists, some of y'all will get that. If you didn't get that, just let it drop and go on. Um, Most Baptists, they don't believe in dancing because they can. And most Baptists I've known, it's like, baby, please don't. You know, just leave that in the box. Number three. Cholrophobia, the fear of clowns. The fear of clowns. Even if you're a clown person, you've got to admit, clowns are just a wee bit freaky. And can I get an amen from the church? There's also number four, phobophobia, which is the fear of fear. Number five, and I think that most kids have this, it's ablutophobia, the fear of washing or bathing. And if you've ever raised children, you say, especially maybe my young boys have a fear of being clean. Number six, dendrophobia, which is the fear of trees. I have a friend in Greenville, South Carolina, very fit, very strong guys into boxing and all sorts of things. But you say, hey, we're going to go hiking up in the mountains. Do you want to come? And you would see him kind of back away. And they say, you know, um, his name is is Justin, if he's listening to this, not my brother, but another one. And he'd say, man, I don't like those trees. And somebody said, what's wrong? He said, those trees can fall on you. Which is true, but maybe he had dendrophobia. Number seven, there's arachnophobia, which goes back to the classic movie, the the fear of, well, we won't say the word, but those little things that can come down on a spindle, land on you, and you won't even know it. Are you scared this morning? All right, amen? Um, I, I want you to think of, in your life, what is it that brings the most fear to you? We all got it? Some of, you, some of you guys are like, she's right here. I don't want to mess with her, okay? Make sure I walk the line. Sorry, that just came out. When you think of fear, often what happens is that Satan understands that we are all imperfect. Do we all realize that? That we are far from perfect and we will never attain perfection. So one thing Satan wants to do with each and every one of us is he wants to find out what we're afraid of and kind of burrow in and needle in and try to grab a hold of that fear and keep us from doing what Jesus told us to do. But what we want to do this morning is look at a message entitled, Hell's Greatest Fear, and we want to turn the tables on Satan today. We want to turn the tables on hell. We're going to stick it to the man, so to speak, and ask the question, what does Satan, what does the devil, what does hell fear the most? And what hell and Satan and every demon that is under his control fears most of all is something that every single one of us who have been saved are longing to see, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? That is it. That is the final thing. In fact, if you want to make a note in your notes, um, Luke chapter 8, verses 28, when Jesus came, the demons knew who He was. 
There was never any demon who had a question about who Jesus was or what he could do. In fact, the demons knew who Jesus was so much. They asked Jesus, they, they, they screamed out in a loud voice and said, oh, Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Wow. So you're saying, Jeff, that even demons in the Bible had a fear of their doom. Yes. Well, then why would demons continue to rebel against God when they knew that their rebellion against God would never would lead to their ultimate destruction? Well, if we got down to the skinny of it, it's the reason why people today don't follow God. It's a decision of the will not to. But let's go ahead and start here in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to try to unpack Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Are you awake this morning? Are you okay? Alright, Revelation chapter 1. What what I want to do here is we're going to just take a quick survey of Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 7. And if you have been with us for any time, that means that this may not be the shortest message you've ever set under in your life. But do not let your heart be troubled. Do not fall on your sword because... One thing that we do, and I just want to encourage you Sunday school teachers. We had an incredible Sunday school this morning. I mean, it was... People's comments and, and, and from the teacher, it was awesome. I mean, I was like, man, this is already church. One thing that happens when you and I walk through the Bible to pick it up, open it, read it through, it is incredible power because God uses His Word. That's where the power is. It's not in a, an explosive presentation, but it's in the power of the Word. So here, I, I want to just take a few moments. What we're going to do is we're going to do this. And I, I hope that you, you understand where this is going. We're going to look at what Satan knows about the book of Revelation. And not only are we going to look at what Satan knows about the Bible, but we're going to look at what Satan knows is coming in the future and try to hone it in and direct it like a laser-guided missile on what hell fears the most. Notice Revelation chapter 1. You see there in verses 5 and 6, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This says, uh, chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is saying, Hail to the victorious warrior. It is just kind of like everyone in the kingdom stops, and they all point their direction direction and their attention towards Jesus and they just say they stretch the bounds of language itself notice verse 8 Jesus says I am the alpha and the omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who help me out church and who is what who is to come Satan knows this is the this is the reality and it says that God is the almighty one means in verse 7 that the return of Christ means, and I just want to be very honest here this morning, the return of Christ for all people who have not turned to Him in faith is going to be it. There's no chance to be saved after death. There's no second uh, go around. It is, our chance is today. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Then if you go over to verses 17 and 18, you see that in uh, verse 18, uh, Jesus says, I am the, and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here is Jesus at the very beginning of one of the most misunderstood and freaky books of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Jesus is saying here, you know what? I am the one who holds the keys to death and hell. Notice chapter 2. You begin in chapter 2 and there's a letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredibly dark place. It was a place of sorcery and witchcraft. And, and we're going to try to, because we've got kids in here, be, be very clear but not get into the details. It was an incredibly twisted and perverted place. Ephesus was one of the darkest places in the ancient world. And the very fact that Satan understood, he knows the Bible, understood that there's actually a church in Ephesus. That's like the church on Bourbon Street, near the French Quarter, in New Orleans, that's seeing pimps and prostitutes and drug addicts come to Christ out of that lifestyle. 
That's what this says to Satan, that there is no place that the gospel cannot penetrate. And then you have over, beginning in verse 12, the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum is a foreign operating base in enemy territory. Also, you have the church in Thyatira there, beginning in verse 18. And it is a church that has been plagued by inward scandal. Isn't it heartbreaking if you've ever been a part of a church and something just rises to the surface? Maybe it's in the leadership. Maybe it's people gossiping against each other. And it seems like this thing of disillusionment with the church, disillusionment with the gospel, disillusionment with other people kind of filters out and then people become depressed. Isn't that a profoundly sad thing? You know what the words of Jesus are to people in those situations? It says in verse 25, Only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. In chapter 3, something that Satan also knows is that there was a church in a place called Sardis. We don't know if they ate sardines, but it was called Sardis. It's an example of the power of the gospel to keep... Now, please hear me. This is an example in the Bible. It is a smack to the face of Satan, the church at Sardis, that it is an example of the power of the gospel to keep a few people, please hear me, a few people alive and loving Christ in an otherwise dead church. That's why it says there uh, in verses 1 through 6, it says, or in verse 4 specifically, it says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. God is saying, you know what, to the dead church, to the church that the majority doesn't care, I'm saving and I'm keeping myself a few who love me. And also the, ver- the church in Philadelphia, beginning there in verse 7, is a church that has little political power, but a great sense of duty and faithfulness. This tells Satan that the church in Philadelphia is an example, that you can take a church that has just a few people, but they are passionately in love with Christ, and the power of Satan cannot break them down. Are you in Encouraged yet today. These are things that Satan knows and he also fears. The church in Laodicea, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3, is an example of a church that is lukewarm. We don't normally like to drink lukewarm water, do we? That's the example that God gives. He says, whether it be hot or be cold, whether if you're not, if you're half and half, Christianity, like I kind of love the Lord, but not really. You know, I love you, I love you not. The Lord is so patient and He's so full of love that He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This tells Satan that even in a church that has drifted away from the gospel, that God will never let it go. Chapter five or chapter four, rather, the scene changes. This is amazing. There's John is is told after he hears this trumpet in verse one. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So imagine if you're John. You're there in prison. This vision comes, and you come up into heaven, and you see an incredible sight there in verse number uh, 7 about these living creatures that look like lions. A lot of strange imagery here, but it's a picture of incredible power in heaven. And notice verse 11. It says, and they cast, verse 10, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord in God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is a smack to Satan because what did he want Jesus to do? He said, if you will only bow down and worship me. Satan understands that in heaven and especially one day, there's going to be every created being who will at least at the very minimum kneel the knee and say there is no Lord but Lord Jesus. And then in verse or chapter number 5, it's this incredible scene to where this, this call goes out through all of heaven and says, is there anyone worthy in verse 2 to open the scroll? Here's what this means. The scroll was, is a symbolic um, uh, metaphor here Um, of the things that are going to come. It's kind of like trying to find someone who can crack a code. It's like trying to find someone who can read a map. Um, It's just kind of like in the Old Testament, there was no one to take down Goliath until David came, right? 
And you could use a modern illustration. Until Edward Penner came along, there was no one who had the cure to smallpox. But once he came and he invented it, smallpox was no longer a fear for anyone. We don't normally worry about that today because the cure has been found. And then it says there in verse number 3 about the scroll, we had to find someone to open up to be good enough to let the world know it's coming. And it says, and no one in heaven or on earth or on under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look in it. This is is an incredible picture of the Bible about the exclusivity and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Notice it says in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. It's like all of heaven stopped. It was the question, will God be able to fix this? Will God be able to use me? Will God's plan in the future really come about? And then Jesus comes on the scene. Are you awake this morning in Rocky Mount Baptist Church? Jesus comes on the scene and they said, Weep no more. There is someone that we've found who's good enough. There is someone we found who can save. There is a mighty Savior who has been identified. And it's none of us, but it's Jesus. And Satan knows it. And he fears it. And then it ends in chapter 5 with worship again. And and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down in worship. And then in chapter 6, I think that Satan actually likes this chapter of the Bible. In fact, if I could say there's any chapter in the Bible to where Satan likes it, he definitely likes the first part. It speaks there in the beginning verses of the Antichrist who's going to come. In verses 3 and 4, it speaks of the demon of war who's going to take peace from the earth. Then it says that there's going to be a black horse come that symbolizes famine. And then there's going to be a pale rider. How many of you have seen the Clint Eastwood movie, Pale Rider? Right? And what follows after him? It says, Greek text, Hades or hell follows after the pale rider of death. Now, it's not going to be Clint Eastwood, but what it symbolizes here, it says in the book of Revelation in verse 8, if you want to mark this down, it's going to be absolutely cataclysmic. One-fourth of the earth will die through famine, pestilence, and wild animals. Not making this up, this comes out of Scripture. We don't know what exactly is going to happen, how it's going to happen, but we know there's going to be such an upheaval of events that even animals are going to begin to go literally wild against people. This is going to be in the Great Tribulation. And then in verses 9-11, through you have uh, the picture of the number of Christians who are going to be killed in the Great Tribulation. So at this point, Satan's saying, good, the earth is being destroyed, people are being killed, I'm wiping out Christians. But then all of a sudden, it has over in verse number 12 when the sixth seal was opened then it just all the bottom falls out and it says in verse 15 and then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling out to the mountains and rocks saying fall on us hide us from the face of almighty God And Satan understands that he's going to have a small window to do his damage, but then Jesus is going to return. And then in chapter 7, you've got an incredible, incredible embarrassment to to Satan in verses 1 through 8. Somebody tell me, let's just talk through this, uh, what people group is identified there that God is going to save 12,000 out of each tribe? Somebody tell me the nation of Israel, right? Israel. Now, what has Satan wanted to do from the beginning? He's wanted to kill all the Jews, We can look in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar tried to wipe out the nation. The Assyrians tried to wipe out the nation. We look at Israel today. There are still people today who hate the Jews. Even in World War II, Hitler and Nazi Germany wanted to exterminate the Jews. And if you think about how small in number the Jewish people are, and how ever since 70 AD, they've never had their own land until 1947... And they've been so hated and oppressed. There's lots of people groups that are not around today. Philistines. Have you ever met a Philistine? Like, well, when I was playing high school football, I think I met a couple. But I mean, other than that, we don't, we don't meet Philistines today. We don't meet 
Hittites. And there's so many ancient peoples that have gone the way of the buffalo. But the Jews are still here. And not only they're still here, but God is saying, you know what, Satan, believers, the world, everything, everyone, in the worst part of human existence, in the last stages of the book of Revelation and the Great Tribulation, I'm going to save 12,000 out of each tribe. And I'm just going to give you that 144,000, that 12 times 12 number, just to make it prophetic. And Satan knows it and he fears it. And here's where it comes to the apex of hell's greatest fear in verse number 9. And after this, after what? We talk about a day. Everything we just talked about and ten times more. After this I looked and behold, I love this, a great multitude that no one could number. Ever looked out on a huge crowd? Maybe it's a picture of somewhere in Europe or those crowds of people in India and they're just all together. Or maybe a gigantic stadium like Virginia Tech and people are just packed on top of each other. It says a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the Lamb is a picture of Jesus because He died for our sin. And all these people were clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Just a little note here. It's okay to get loud in worship. Amen? It's okay to sing loud if you want to say amen. You may wake somebody up, but praise the Lord for that. It's okay to cry out with a loud voice because that's what's going on in heaven. Well, what do they say? Look at what verse 10 says. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels... So we've got representatives from every people group on the planet. And then only that, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four creatures and... They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Do you know that every time basically a person saw an angel in the Bible, they didn't do what we see on TV today. Oh, look, I've been... And I'm not making fun of the show. I guess I am in a sense. Look, I've been touched by an angel. If they thought they were going to get touched by an angel, just seeing an angel threw most people in the Bible into a state of panic. Even the Roman soldiers, when Jesus came out of the tomb, the angels appeared and the men fell down like they were dead. These these were not pencil pushers. These were not geeks or nerds. These were hardened Roman soldiers. And you have these beings who are so powerful and majestic that when people saw them, they were in fear for their lives. And even these angels fell on their face before the throne and worshipped God. And verse 12 tells us what they said. Saying, Amen, which means so be it. Means that's good, let it stand. Blessing and and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. That's pretty good, right? Do you think there's a little bit of worth being ascribed to there? Let me read that again. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God for how long? From uh, 11 a.m. to 12 a.m. Better stop on the button on 12 a.m., Pastor. P.m., brother. Yeah, that'd be a late church service. They put him in a box. They say forever and ever. Amen. And then John does kind of kind of what um, we would want to do. Like, what's what's going on here? Well, Harry Carey, what's, what's going on? Verse 13. Uh, then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where did they come from? Remember that huge group of every people group, every color? And I said to him, this is what we say, Sir, you know. John's like, I'm out of my league. I may be a little freaked out. You're asking me, what does this mean? I don't really know what's going on. Sir, you know. And then he said to me in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is such an amazing promise. The next two verses 
Three verses for believers in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And there are some people in the world who need to be sheltered by God's presence. Right, church? There are some of you today, you say, Lord, I need to be sheltered in your presence. Verse 16. This is so good. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For, here is the purpose clause, for the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And this is so good. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some people say, well, we're, we're not going to ever cry in heaven. Well, it says that when He's wiping their tears away, when they get there. And I don't know what all is going to shake down, but I do know that Satan knows this is going to happen. And his greatest fear is if we actually take the words of Jesus at face value and go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. But there's going to be that amazing day. Can you imagine how it would be? Some of you have invested in people's lives. In fact, some of the people that have been saved here at this church are a direct result of you, not the pastor, of you inviting them to church, you speaking life into them. And I just think it would be, it's going to be an amazing thing, like the old Ray Bolt song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. You know how that song goes? It talks about the kid who was in Sunday school and a missionary told the story about this place, this faraway place to where people didn't know the Lord. And then he gave. The Sunday school teacher would share the gospel. And one day, I asked Jesus into my heart. I, re- I gave my life to Christ. And the little boy grows up. And he gives. And, and the picture, we, don't, we know that all the praises are going to go to God. But I think it's just interesting to think. Maybe someday in heaven, because God uses us for His glory, it would be an amazing thing to see people that God has used us to invest in. And they're there. And if we had never invested in them, they wouldn't be there, but they would be in hell. And we're there. And we're just overwhelmed by the majesty of God. And by the love of God. And by all that Jesus has done for us. And we kind of think back like we went a couple weeks ago in the message to, to like the disciples and what they had done and what we have done in our lives. All the times we've disappointed the Lord. All the times to where we have been an absolute train wreck. But His grace came and rescued us once again. And He allowed us to be used to bring other people to salvation. And we're there around the throne. And we're looking around and we're just broken by the grace of God. We are overwhelmed. And then Jesus comes. And as it says in verse 17, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In heaven, there will be no more need to weep. But Satan knows this. And his greatest fear is what we're longing to see, and that is the return of Christ. And his greatest fear is that you would do, we're going to give our application points here, Normally, this is a little bit different arrangement that we normally do. I'm going to give you five application points, okay? So for our OCD note takers, I actually use the number. We're going to go through five application points of hell's greatest fear. In other words, if we do these things, it's going to strike fear into the heart of the one who wants us to fear everything but God. So it's a way for us today... Given what we've studied, a brief, very brief survey of Revelation chapter 1 through 7, a very brief way, but a real way for us to stick it to the enemy and say, Satan, you have tormented me for years, fear of whatever it may be. And I hope that, that at least for adults, it's not the fear, whatever it was, of, of bathing. But if that is, maybe the Lord can set you free from that. or Whatever it may be. So say, today, Satan, I am taking action for the gospel. There's five components of making hell's greatest fear become a reality. Number one, for the church to understand and obey its central purpose. To bring the gospel to every people group. Now, Jeff, what, what, what does Satan want for my life? Well, he definitely doesn't want you to get saved. 
If you're here today and you've never been changed by Jesus Christ, you've never been really transformed and born again, you don't have love, you don't have joy, you don't have peace, you don't have patience, uh, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If your family would tell me, if I asked them honestly, describe you to them, and they would say, he or she is an absolute hellion. If they, were, if they were out of the picture, our family would be so much better. They don't have a desire for God. They may come to church once in a while, but when they do, they're thinking, please, God, help Jeff to get laryngitis so I can get out. Satan doesn't want you to get saved. He wants you to stay. He wants you to resist. But let's say that, well, what about the people who are saved? What if we're in this group here, the ones who've been born again and washed by the blood of Jesus? And we've given our lives to Christ and He saved us. What about us? What does Satan want for us? Because we're always about what is God's will for us. But if we can, go with me on this, thinkers. If we can define what Satan's desire is for us, then we can simply invert that and find the will of God for us. If you get saved, Satan doesn't so much care what you do so long as you don't obey Jesus' command in Matthew 28 to take the gospel to all the nations. Because if the gospel does not go to all the nations, then God's plan ultimately fails. There's a statement here by um, Daryl Guter. He says, Mission is not merely an activity of the church. Rather, mission is the result of God's initiative rooted in God's purposes to restore and heal creation. Um, William Carey was an incredible missionary several hundred years ago. And in his day, a lot of people went to church in England. But when people went to church in England, there wasn't really an emphasis on taking the gospel all around the world. And the mentality was, well, if God is going to save them, then He doesn't need you. If God's going to save people, he, he doesn't need us to do anything because He's God, right? I mean, like, why, does, why would God use us? And William Carey wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means. In other words, to do something for the conversion of the heathens. And here's what William Carey said. I hope that we can, we can grab a hold of what he's saying. He says, and I quote, we must be not be contented. We must not be contented with praying without exerting ourselves in the use of means for the obtaining of those things we pray for. We track in with that? We're the children of light, the Christians, uh, but as wise as their generation as the children of this world, they would stretch every nerve to gain so glorious a prize, nor ever imagine that it was to be obtained in any other way. You know what he's saying? He's like, if we were half as devoted as the world is on getting fame, getting fortune, getting popularity, we would strain every nerve we can to do what Jesus told us to do. And that's take the gospel into all the world. Second component of making hell's greatest fear become a reality. Number two, for the church to understand that every role of the church, every role of the church, every single role of the church is rooted in evangelism and missions. This goes back to Matthew chapter 28. Someone will say, now Jeff, you say that the primary and the total job of the church is to do missions. Well, well, what about hospitality ministry? Um, We're Baptists, so we're still going to eat. Amen? Alright, what what, what about the music ministry? Music ministry can be missional. What what about visiting people in the hospitals? Yes, that's, that's legit. Just because we say that mission and evangelism, winning people to Christ is the main thing, doesn't mean that we don't do anything else. But I want us all to understand a very simple fact. And I wrote this down. I'm going to read it to you because I don't want to jumble it up. There will be no ministries of the church if there are no people in the church. Y'all all right? There will be no ministries of the church if there are no people in the church. You can't have ministry to people who aren't there. How do people become followers of Christ? Someone has to intentionally go out and get them and share the gospel, bring them to church. It has to be an intentional thing. Because everything else that we do from the church is a byproduct of missions. We all on the same page? Like, let's, let's imagine right now, okay? 
Right now, all of us, we say, I'm going to stay in Rocky Mount Baptist Church for the rest of my life, however long that's going to be. But let's imagine that not one of us wins one person to Christ, however long we may live. What's eventually going to happen to Rocky Mount Baptist Church, even if, you know, for for our children, even if they stay here for their whole life and they live to the ripe old age of 110, okay, they ate their uh, health food or whatever it was, if all of us combined never win one person to Jesus, then one day it's going to be like a video I saw at a church in Florida. They had the screens there, and the screens had a video of the church in the pews during a service. And then they had sped it up to where it was after church, people got up, they began to talk, a few left here, a few left here, a few left here. And then after a while, one by one by one by one, they trickled out of the sanctuary And there was no one in there. That's the process of a church that says, I'm a member there, I'm going to stay, but I'm not going to lead anybody to Christ. And that's what most of our churches are experiencing all across America today. In fact, there are some denominations that within the next 10, 15, possibly 20 years will not really even be an entity. That's simple math, right? You say, well, I love the Lord. I love my church. How do I go about winning people to Christ? It has to do with a heart issue. It has to do with the people that we know, the people that we already know we interact with, to speak life into them and to to have a compassion that overwhelms our fears. Ray Comfort asked a great question when he says, when we're afraid to share the gospel with people, he said, uh, would it be better to experience the fear today of them rejecting the gospel, or for them to experience the fires of hell for all eternity. So Satan doesn't mind so much, really, if we even meet. I know this may be going out on a theological limb, but I want to explain my point. Satan doesn't mind so much that we meet and even learn the Bible, but what he fears is if we actually obey what Jesus said to do. Because if we we obey what Jesus said to do, then point number three, the fact that Jesus will return when the gospel is preached to every people group. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. George Eldon Ladd said this, and some of you who are in Sunday school may have discovered this statement. He says, God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define, quote, who all the nations are. Only God knows exactly the meaning of, quote, evangelize. He alone will know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. Amen? I don't need to know when he's coming. George Eldon Ladd says, I know one thing. Christ has not returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. John Wayne says, daylight's burning. And then somebody says, now hold on, Pastor. Are you saying that all we're supposed to do is go to other areas of the world, but not do anything for people here? Number one, I want to address a heart issue. If we are not concerned for the nations, not just the nations, but the people groups, those lost people groups who don't have the gospel, if we are not concerned about them, if the first objective that comes in our mind is let me do whatever I can not to go or not to give so that someone can go, that is a deadly heart condition within the heart of a believer. Do you know why? Because somebody a long time ago broke out of their culture and brought the gospel to ours. We've been through this many times. All of our ancestors were at one time an unreached people group. And aren't you glad that some little Jewish guys in the first church in the New Testament in Jerusalem decided to take the Holy Spirit and allow Him to work through them? And Paul says the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's to everybody. Amen? If you're not a Jew here today, that should excite you because if they had never taken that serious, then every single person outside of that small community would never know the gospel and none of us would have the chance to ever go to heaven and escape hell. So it's a huge, huge heart issue. And I encourage you to search your heart that when we talk about the issue of unreached people groups and the first thing that comes to our hearts and minds is find ways to divert our money from that. It is a deadly, deadly sinful condition. But it's never an either or. 
It's always a both, a both and. A boast and. Wow, that'd be really strange. It's always a both and. In fact, um, I've got a... Um, I'm going to give a lot of this because it's not all worked out yet, but I've got an appointment with a very important person in the community about the possibility of us being able to help people here um, in a great way to help troubled young people, uh, to help possibly inmates here in the great town of Rocky Mount. We've got we've done some great things. We've gone to the children's home. We've had a community outreach meal, and we're going to do more of that. But what I found, and this was taught to me by a very wise pastor, he said most of the time the people who don't want to do missions to take the gospel to unreached people groups, they'll say things like, well, well, don't we have enough needs in our own community? He said, if you ask most of those people, what are you doing to reach people in your community? Most of them aren't doing anything as it stands anyway. And I would be terrified to be one who's not. And once you say, Jeff, are you mad at something? No, no, I'm just, this is honest from Scripture. Can we be honest today? I've not had bad conversations the last two weeks. I'm not mad at anybody. This is a a hard issue that often gets glossed over because the preachers are afraid of making someone mad. I think we have an amazing church, but I want to be very honest with you today. And that is, I would never want to be in the place of holding back what Jesus told us to do. Ben made an incredible statement in Sunday school today, and I hope that I remember the, the gist of it. But about that whole question, well, what about our people instead of those people? It's never ours versus them. It's all. But he said that if our idea of missions is different than Jesus's, we're the ones who have the wrong idea about missions. Jesus is the one who said for his followers to take the gospel into all of the world. Fourth component of making hell's greatest fear become a reality, that God promised to save people from every people group. Acts chapter 28, verse 28 says, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. You say, Jeff, is everybody going to be saved in the end? No, everybody's not going to be saved. But the gospel is so powerful that some people from each and every people group will be saved. You say, Jeff, I don't know if I could ever go on a mission trip. That's fine. But we just ask you, and we don't have necessarily specific place that we're going to get plugged into in the future, but I just encourage you that you would pray with me and we would pray together. Say, Lord, you can use Rocky Mount Baptist Church and I believe that God is strong enough that He could use us through our international mission board to plug in that God can use Rocky Mount Baptist Church to break through and cause that list of unreached people groups to be one less. Do you believe that? You know, Jeff, I think so, but, but we're not the biggest church in the biggest town. Well, Jesus started the whole thing with 11 frightened, cowardly men in an upper room hiding, so much so that the ladies had to go check out to see the tomb. I mean, you definitely lose man cards on that. Somebody's chasing me. Go get her, honey. It's like somebody's breaking in the middle of the night. Make sure to Flick this 12-gauge on safe before you go down the stairs. Love you. I mean, what, what is that? That God used those guys to start the whole thing up. And I just think of that, that quote, right? That classic quote from JFK. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Let's put a Christian spin on that. Let's not come to church and say, what can my church do for me? What can my pastor do for me? Because what's going to end up is we're going to disappoint you. Sorry, we're not trying to. We don't have a committee of disappointments here. But if we have that and mentality for anybody, we're always going to be mad and upset and disappointed. But it's an amazingly freeing thing when we get plugged into what Jesus told us to do. And if you're depressed here this morning, I encourage you to begin to go to the imb.org, the IMB website, and begin to pray for an unreached people group. Think of someone who's taught you about Jesus in your past. Write them a thank you note. And I tell you, it's a psychological principle. One of the ways you get out of depression, and one of the ways that churches, that churches get out of a rut, is they begin to thank people and praise people, because that's what's going on in Revelation. And there's no whining or crying there. Amen? Before we go to our, our last point, I want to pose a question. Imagine if we have the knowledge now of what happened to the Titanic, but we were somehow there. And as we saw people get on the Titanic, we knew that it was going to sink, and we began to plead with them. 
And they said things like, it's my vacation. Who is this creep? Who is this weirdo? Leave us alone. We're going on the Titanic. Didn't you hear that God can't even sink the ship? I mean, look at it. It is literally the greatest invention that's ever been performed by humans. And this is literally a spaceship uh, in the early 1900s. And we begin to say, no, you don't understand. It's going to sink. We know it's going to sink. What would we do? We'd commandeer a boat. We would rent a yacht. We would take out loans to get as many ships to follow it, to be as close, because we know when it goes down, people have to be saved. And if no one's there, then they're going to die. They're going to perish. And it's the same thing when we think about all these people groups around the world. And I think it's so amazing that when people go to different places around the world, they come back really passionate to see Americans saved. They do. It's happened with me. It's happened with so many people. You say to Jeff, my health is to the point that I can't go. You can pray and you can encourage and you can give and you can pat them on the back and say, go get them, tiger. You can be involved in the greatest thing that God has ever brought about. And that is Revelation chapter 7, when one day when the doom of Satan will be sealed and all of the things that he has done, it will be wrapped up into a trash can. It will be thrown into the lake of fire and God will put the top on and lock it for all eternity. There will be no more tears and we'll be there praising God and saying it's an amazing thing that God has allowed me to take part in this. The final component of making hell's greatest fear become a reality is that heaven will be filled with every people group. This past Tuesday night I had the chance to preach at um, Tabernacle of Praise Church right next to KFC. My first time ever preaching in a black church. I met the, the pastor at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. prayer breakfast. And Miss Angela um, gave me the opportunity to do that. I prayed and then at the end, and he came up and said that, you know, I blew the Holy Spirit, wanted me to come and ask you if you would come lead Bible study for us on a Tuesday night. I said I would be honored. And so uh, I went and it was not Bible study. Y'all tracking with me? Okay, it was it, it was it was so full on church. It was not even funny. They had a full team. The pastor was playing a keyboard and an organ at the same time, and it was grooving. Had a drummer going going off. Like I think a part of the drum even flew off, and I I notified him that. So I think he had the spiritual gift of awesomeness, you know. And they had this team of singers, and they were absolutely into it. It just uplifted your soul. And and the pastor got up and he said, "Do oh, you feel better now than before you came in?" And I was like, "Man, this is all. Oh, what is this?" And then I got up to preach, and people were into it. And the pastor's name is Jeff, and we were talking about the old Jeff. And I gave him a five in the middle of the sermon. Everybody was going nuts, standing up, praising the Lord, clapping. And I said, "You know what? For them to allow this." me to come in and give the word but it was amazing because there was a unity in the gospel it's a unity in the gospel and just to know before we close this up today that if you don't like people who are not white you are going to have a hard time in heaven I mean how awkward would that be the Bible has gone to incredible lengths to make sure that we understand it's going to be from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, every mix and every color. And it's going to be an amazing event. And if we've got a problem with people here, there's the question, is our heart really there? Because up there, there will be no distinction. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Christ has come to break down the wall of separation between Jew and Greek. You say, Jeff, how is hell's greatest fear ever going to become a reality? And here's how it becomes a reality. When God uses, quote, ordinary Christians like you and me to take an extraordinary gospel to the ends of the earth. That begins here and it ends up wherever there may be. And our final quote, I wanted to burn it into our hearts today. Let God change our souls for evangelism and missions is a quote from J.C. Ryle who says, the highest form of selfishness is that of the person who is content to go to heaven alone. The highest form of selfishness is that of the person who is content to go to heaven alone. You've responded so well 
in just the short time that I've been here. You have been a very odd church. It's meant as a compliment, Kathy. Absolutely. I have a pastor friend whose church actually lowered his salary because he brought him on a mission trip. I believe, and I don't know everybody's hearts, really, we don't even know know ours totally, but I believe it's, it's best we've talked that this is a church that desires to see people saved. You have supported the people who have come here to be saved. You're pouring into our new members. You are still inviting people to church. I just want to thank you for that. I wasn't going to—I was going to say this for next week, but I'll just say it now. Um, before I was here, there, there was something that was posed on a Sunday morning, very honestly, um, a while ago in Rocky Mount Baptist Church about whether the church was going to continue to exist. Now I'm not going to name names. I was told who they were. There are a couple of people that came down front and basically said that they don't believe that God is through with Rocky Mount Baptist Church. And those of you who spoke up said what everybody else here believes and that God is not finished. And I want to thank you for your courage. I want to thank you for your faithfulness. And I believe that one day in heaven when we're there in chapter 7, when that all becomes a reality in space-time, we're just going to be amazed the fact that God has used us to bring an extraordinary gospel all across the world. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our commitment to this message is to look deep within our hearts and try to find that phobia, that thing that we fear most, that thing that may be keeping us from even talking to people that we've known here, family and friends, even just bringing up the gospel or doing the Great Commission here. Let this be a time today to where you've realized that the Lord is stronger than your fear. And your commitment, Christian, right now is to, from this day forward, to live on faith, to become bold, to become compassionate, and begin to speak up for the Lord, to pray for people, and to speak life into them. There's some of you that may have, you say, Jeff, I've never really understood the connection between Satan's doom and our taking the gospel into all the world. And today I'm rededicating my heart. I'm repenting from a coldness to all the lost nations around the world. Today, Lord, I'm just telling you that I want to be in. I want to pray. I want to give. If it's possible for me, I want to go. But I want to support the mission of this church Support the International Mission Board to take the gospel into all the world. If you're here today and you've never been saved, but you know that you need God in your life, the Bible says if you repent, if you turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. We're going to give you a chance when we begin to sing, just to get up out of your seat and walk down this aisle. By doing that, you're letting the Lord know. um, You're letting this church know that I'm ready to follow Christ. We encourage you, we implore you, if you need to join this church, if your heart is right and your spirit is here with us, You need to join by baptism or by coming from another church. We don't steal members, but if the Lord is drawing you here and you know it's Him and you know it's not bitterness from a former church, we invite you to come. Father, would you just use this time in Jesus' name. Amen.